Australian South African author was inspired by Dickens' characters because Courtney's, Dick, Courtney's characters were all about 10% bigger than reality, except Dickens' characters are all about 20% bigger than reality. And they have great names like Ebenezer Scrooge, who was a cold-hearted miser, or Pip, one of literature's most beloved characters in Great Expectations, or Miss Havisham, the wealthy spinster in Great Expectations who was jilted at the altar and never got over it, wearing her wedding dress for the rest of her life. And of course, Uriah Heep, who masked his ambition with real basic humbleness. One of the most dramatic scenes in all of Dickens' novels is set in the end of A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, it's in Paris and it's in the middle of the French Revolution. Uh, the central character in the story is a man named Sidney Carlton. He's portrayed as a brilliant but depressed barrister who becomes a cynical drunkard. His life is full of self-loathing and a profound lack of achievement. But he falls in love with a French lady. This is the two of them. A French lady named Lucie Manette. Only problem is she's married to Monsieur Manette, Mr Manette. So it becomes a story of unrequited love from Sidney Carlton to Lucy, who will never notice him or appreciate him. Nevertheless, something good does come from this situation. Sidney Carlton decides to become a better man, a better person, because of his love for Lucy. If he cannot have her love, he can at least earn her regard. As the novel reaches its climax, and members of the French aristocracy in the middle of the French Revolution are being sent in droves to the guillotine, Carlton, is that... <laughs> that could be her calling now. Um, as the novel reaches its climax in the midst of the French Revolution and French aristocrats are being sent to the guillotine, Carlton sees his opportunity to make something of his life. He sees an opportunity to do something that will redefine his whole life and its moral value in a way that people would have previously thought that was impossible. And to give his family something to be proud of when they think about him. Carlton decides that he will take the place of Monsieur Manette and go to the guillotine himself. In Monsieur Manette, Mr Manette's place. Carlton observes that doing this would be a far, far better thing than anything else he'd done in the rest of his life. Commentator Tom Wright observes the powerful things that happen in the extraordinary moment of A Tale of Two City. And one of the things that's going on here that Dickens was tapping into was he was weaving into this story the deep cultural memory of what also had happened with Jesus Christ. A crucifixion story of one person giving his life in place of others and yet he was innocent. In fact, Jesus says in John 15 this way, greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. A story that we, a verse that we now attribute to those who give their life in service for our nation. Jesus' crucifixion, as we're seeing in Matthew's gospel, pulls more and more characters and motives into the wake of the greatest of tragedies. And yet in the passage before us, as has happened in previous weeks, no one stops it. Especially those who could have stopped it. 
Don't. And in today's passage, we have the final insult where Barabbas, who Matthew describes as a notorious prisoner, is set free rather than Jesus. The scene starts with Jesus before the governor in verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. It continues, When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. One of the strangest occurrences that happens in this scene is that as well as Jesus being on trial, there is another Jesus in prison nearby who has already proven guilty. Now, Jesus was a relatively common name in those days, like Joshua is today, and this other Jesus was named Jesus Barabbas. This is how Matthew records what comes next. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Christ, the one who was called Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate clearly wanted to get rid of two problems that were on his desk that day, right in front of him. The crowd was baying for blood, and he wanted to also, it seems, save an innocent Jesus from a cruel death. And I presume that he thought that by dangling the rebel rouser, Jesus Barabbas, the criminal before the crowd, Jesus Christ, the good, the innocent Jesus, would look far more appealing and suitable as to be one freed at this festival celebration. They had, after all, only recently just cheered Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey and its foal on the previous Sunday. Pilate would have thought, I would have thought, this would have been a fairly easy choice. I think I would have tried the same thing had I been wearing Pilate's shoes. Then Matthew reinforces the evidence of the scene by telling us the message that came from Pilate's wife in verse 19. And if you're going to do anything, listen to your wife when she has a dream. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. God often and, and often speaks through dreams in Matthew, and particularly at the start of Matthew and the end of Matthew. We know it's coming to a highlight here because we're back into the world of dreams, which Matthew started early on. For example, God spoke to Joseph in a reassuring dream about Mary's pregnancy. Remember that in Matthew 1? But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. God spoke to Joseph in a dream in chapter 2 verse 13, warning him about Herod as well and told them to go to Egypt and stay there and have refuge as refugees, the young holy family. Matthew wrote, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. 
Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And then later in that passage in chapter 2 of Matthew, through a dream, God also spoke to Joseph to say it was safe to go back to the Holy Land. Verses 19 and 20, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Matthew spatters dreams as clear ways that God communicates to characters in this story early on. And here we are again with the governor's wife having a dream about keeping away from being involved in the death of this innocent man. Here at the end of Matthew, the place of dreams re-emerges. Pilate's wife is clearly greatly troubled about the role Pilate might have been getting himself involved in, in becoming involved in the shedding of an innocent man's blood. She seems in this passage to have been worn ragged and sleepless by its reality and its severity. The elders and the chief priests in the scene, they can see that Pilate could fold. His wife has come to him in this state. And so they present Pilate with an ultimatum. Release Barabbas and kill Jesus of Nazareth or there will be civil unrest. And that is what Pilate cannot allow at all. That's his job from Rome, to suppress and sit on a piece of territory and keep it peaceful. This is what Matthew says. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. He just keeps trying. Barabbas, they answered. Pilate is worried that the wrong man is going to be freed and consequently the wrong man will die the cruel death. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. So then the scene is set. There is nowhere else to go now except the cross. The wrong man has been freed, <coughs> excuse me, and the innocent man is condemned to a horrible death. Matthew finish <coughs> excuse me. Matthew finishes when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead of an uproar was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I'm, I, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. What a curse. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. When Matthew records Pilate washing his hands, Matthew's not absolving Pilate of all responsibility for Jesus' death. Matthew's point is that guilt, this guilt is shared and transferred also to the religious leaders and the crowd who pay for Jesus' blood, as well as their children, 
who would ultimately live to see the, the destruction of Jerusalem in a generation's time. The point Matthew is trying to make is that we are all Barabbas. We are all Pilate, the weak bully. We are all the crowd. We are all the children and the generations that come after the crowd. What Pilate does here by shining a light on Barabbas in this narrative is that he shows us that Jesus' blood and death is for all people. Everyone is guilty in this scene. No one ultimately does enough. They all fall short of the glory of God. The key to understanding this passage is not through the guilt and the role of each of the characters that Matthew presents us with. The key to understanding what Matthew recorded for us here is through Jesus' innocence. He is the character who does it all right and shouldn't have gone down this route. Everyone else has a problem or a stain on their character or their actions. The narrative leads behind all the characters Matthew has drawn into this scene. The crowd and their children, the religious leaders, the chief priests, Barabbas, Peter and Judas. They all, everyone, fall short. The whole human project and its systems of religion and law and power and personal sin all conspired to put this innocent man on the cross. It was precisely Jesus' innocence and sinlessness that this world, that these people who are us could not tolerate. Jesus dies in the place of the sinner. That's all the characters in this scene. That's all the characters in the scenes and the passages leading up to this scene. But it's also you and me. It's all of us. And in the midst of it, God's rescue plan continues. At the Passover festival that year in Jerusalem, God made a way through the Red Sea of sin and death once and for all. Barabbas despite all that he had done that was so bad, walked free as a very example to us of the freedom that we can take on board if we follow Christ, if we take our lives to Christ. Look what happened to that wicked criminal who was placed before Jesus. The innocent man suffered so the guilty man could walk free. It's incredible. It's all of us. We can each receive this life in Christ through confession and faith in who Christ is, in Jesus' life, in Jesus' death, in Jesus' lordship. Like Barabbas, we each are given an invitation to freedom in Christ, undeserved and unmerited certainly, but freely available, friends. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzenberg was born into one of Europe's leading families in the year 1700. He grew up in an atmosphere of prayer and Bible and hymn singing. He excelled at education and seemed ready to use his prodigious talents in national leadership. After completing his university studies at the University of Wittenberg, 
He embarked on a grand tour of Europe, giving, attending lectures and visiting palaces and galleries and universities. It was while he was at the art gallery in Dusseldorf that the young Count had a deeply moving experience. The experience stayed with him for the rest of his life. He was wandering through the gallery when he came to Domenico Fetti's Ecce Homo, Behold the Man, it is called, which is a portrait of the crown of thorn wearing Jesus. And below it is the inscription, which is there in Latin, I did this for thee. What hast thou done for me? Zinzendorf said to himself, I have loved him for a long time, but I have never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to. And his life was never the same again. Zinzendorf went on to found a Christian spiritual community on his extensive property, which sparked a prayer meeting for missions that ran for 100 years without stopping and sent missionaries all over the world, including to people like the Wesleys. Zinzendorf's movement founded the cross-cultural missionary movement of the modern era, which William Carey was to take to new levels cross-culturally a few decades later. And it all started with his arrest and confession of what the innocent Christ had done for the guilty Zinzendorf. Friends, this is good news. The very worst of circumstances where a perfect, sinless, innocent man was felled becomes the entry point of redemption to each of us. Barabbas teaches us that no matter what you feel, no matter what you are doing, no matter what you have done, if you come to Christ, you will have forgiveness, freedom, and acceptance. That is the gospel, and I cannot make it any more clear than that. This is what is achieved in this moment. We are all Barabbas. None of us are perfect. We all bring whatever it is that we bring. But we don't have to suffer guilt. We don't have to suffer the cross. We don't have to suffer punishment. We don't have to suffer for it if we give it to Christ. An innocent, sinless man who, enduring the cross, found a way for humanity to go free and walk with light and fellowship and peace and freedom and share this good news and promote this good work and redeem a broken Humanity with the only way that works through Christ. Through lowering ourselves and raising him. Through confessing what we are and where we are and elevating him. That is the gospel. That is what many of us give our lives to. Amen. That is the hope that we have for our lives. That is the hope that we have for our neighbours. That is the motivation that we can offer to the world. Jesus took all of this on, that we might have life. Hallelujah. Amazing, the gospel. Let me pray. Loving God, thank you for this extraordinary message this morning. 
where we see all the characters in previous passages as well as this morning peeling off and failing. Judas and Peter and the disciples and Pilate and people and the governor and his wife, even though she tried, and the crowds and the religious leaders all falling and failing, all missing what's going on here. That the Son of God who leads a perfect life, who did only good, who spoke only the truth, who shone only life, who redeemed, who freed, who healed, now had to suffer so that people like Barabbas, people like me, people like us could go free. Thank you so much, Jesus. We worship you. We praise you. We commit to you. We elevate you. We marvel at your love, at your sacrifice and your commitment. The Son of God would do that, that we might be free through faith in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. As we close this.